Hi everyone. So those of you who've been following some of our log cabin chats from the beginning of the year, um, we you will see we're not in a log cabin today. So apart from it being one of the hottest days um, that the UK has seen all year, we decided that um, it would be nice to come out of the office and uh, just get into, into nature because nature has got such a way of de-stressing and relaxing and helping your microbiome and just um, turning things around and giving you that little breather in your headspace. So Rob and I have come together today and I've got a few questions for him because I think that um, there is such a dichotomy showing in the media at the moment where we're being told very much one thing and I still feel this frenzied, fearful energy that's being put across to everyone about um, COVID-19, about the potential for a second wave and in cases of infection. And yet when we're looking at some of the data, the two is a, there's a huge dichotomy. So Rob, thank you very much for coming to chat to us. How serious is COVID-19? I think the overall data is really pointing the direction of the problem around COVID-19 being no more serious than pneumonia and influenza in past years. And the difficulty we have really in separating COVID-related deaths and all the other related deaths creates a problem. The data are completely conflated in most countries. And then when you go to different parts of the world, the degree of conflation also changes. So conflation, you mean they're all mixed together? They're mixed up because pathology services aren't functioning as normal. There is a pandemic, so we're not getting accurate indications. And um, as we've all known for a very long time, um, deaths that are related to COVID are simply COVID-related deaths where infection is detected using antigen testing methods that are giving about 50% accuracy. Um, and um, we also know in some cases there is, you know, just uh, symptomatic, uh, you know, uh, identification of, of, of COVID. So um, there is no testing at all. And so we, we, we really, the most reliable data we can look at are still looking at patterns of mortality over time and particularly excess mortality whether or not we have mortalities that are over and above say five-year averages and um, when you look at those data you can see many many countries around the world where there actually is no problem there has been no excess mortality we always in the northern climes or the extreme southern climes will see um, an excess winter mortality and um, but we see death rates in the vast majority of countries um, pretty much behaving as normal. So this idea of this being this global pandemic with, you know, hundreds of thousands of people dying. Um, yes, we have, um, you know, various figures from around the world that, that suggest there may be um, Johns Hopkins is suggesting at the moment there's 740,000 COVID relating related mm -hmm. deaths there's 20 million cases it sounds bad but you'll know even in the UK the embarrassment around uh, 
talking about on a nightly basis COVID deaths. Even Matt Hancock has had to say we've got to stop doing that because the figures are inaccurate. And what it does, if you're hearing that kind of information every night, you fail to look at it in the context of other deaths. And um, absolutely, so and I know that um, it's certainly in the UK the language has all changed to cases. So now they're looking at um, at infection rates. Um, and yet most of these people are completely asymptomatic, but we're seeing cases where um, towns are being locked down again and uh, businesses brought to a halt, and yet there's no further deaths and there's not even really any, um, any symptoms. No, the, the reality is we still don't have accurate data on the number of asymptomatic or pre-symptomatic individuals. So the bias in the UK, as in a lot of countries, is still let's test particularly if people are symptomatic. So you're getting people who have upper respiratory tract infections. Let's remember we are being um, exposed to a very wide range of bacteria and viruses all the time. Um, SARS coronavirus 2 is just one. You identify that genetic mm. sequence and if you go out and look for it, you see it a lot. If you think about yellow cars, for example, um, it's not until you have a yellow car that you start <laughs> noticing yellow cars. And then you think, wow, there's quite a few yellow cars out there. Um, but you didn't notice them beforehand. Um, so we have an issue. If you look, for example, at um, the, the, the typical way of looking at prevalence of diseases, including infectious diseases, to look at them in relation to the per 100,000 of the population. And at the moment, the UK, in terms of COVID-related deaths, is sitting at the top of the tree, which has been a bit of an embarrassment for the UK government, mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. at around 68 um, deaths, COVID-related deaths per 100,000 population. And that might sound bad when you're at the top of the table. When you look at that compared with, say, pneumonia and influenza deaths in the UK, um, the UK has been tracking between 2014 and 2019 at between about 215 to 265 per 100,000. Okay, so mm -hmm. we're not even at that level. That really puts it in perspective. Yeah, and now we're seeing that these data are mixed because when, you know, pneumonia is being classified as, you know, when it's COVID pneumonia, it's COVID. It's COVID. Um, so um, you, you're not detecting bacterial-related infections because, mm -hmm. again, pathology is not working properly. And we're seeing a, another sequence of mortality that's starting to be added to it, which is non-COVID-related deaths. And um, because deaths are highest in the over-90s, these are people who would be dying soon. And what they, probably, now... they probably have lots of comorbidities as well and other, Absolutely. And other issues. Absolutely. But when you divert attention in the healthcare system to mm. other causes, you see more of these people dying. And what we're now seeing in the UK is a very clear spike in care homes and private care homes in the ONS data. That's really significant. That's neglect. So we got a, a healthcare problem that is caused through neglect, negligence, essentially, of these people who have historically been looked after very carefully because they're at the 
in the twilight and their, and their families their can't come in and be there and I know we're seeing quite a few reports of um, some not so nice goings-on at um, and some of our care homes and I know it's a, a very emotive subject because many care homes are doing an outstanding job but there do seem to be some isolated incidents before we go on and talk about deaths can we just talk about testing mm. because um, you know, the messages that we're getting through all the track and trace and all the rest of it is that you'd think the testing was bulletproof. And yet, even the even the scientists that actually formulated the, the PCR test said you cannot use it for diagnosing bacterial and viral infections. But can you just explain to us, you know, some of the issues around that? Yeah, the, the I mean, the papers, the research is, is showing that at best we're getting around 50% accuracy for detecting the presence of a small genetic sequence mm -hmm. that is related to a virus that was originally identified in Wuhan. Now, let's understand what that means. When you focus on that particular genetic sequence, it doesn't mean you're being made sick from that sequence. It means that sequence is there. But if you are not also detecting all the other sequences linked to the other viruses to which we're exposed, um, you can't have any data that, that, that shows that there is a causal relationship between the presence of that gene sequence and the infection. And this is, this is a really big misunderstanding. We, we assume so much, particularly when we're exposed on a daily basis to these kind of figures about case rates and you know, case fatality rates and uh, and deaths and, and testing and track and trace. Um, so, um, and, and obviously the, the, the antigen testing, the PCR test is just looking at that gene sequence. Um, on the other side of it, we've got antibody testing, which is generally looking at, you know, one antibody, um, when in fact, mm -hmm. you know, essentially our humoral response elevates a number of antibodies that are marked and we um, might we might all individually use different lines of defense as well ex exactly um and it and there's been very little testing looking at t-cell responses which is the cell mediated side mm -hmm. of the uh, adaptive immune response and um as we learn more about this new disease um we see that it's actually very much the t-cell response may be very significant it's a good paper coming out of sweden that, that's suggesting that the T cell response, because Sweden didn't lock down in the same way and allowed the virus to move through the population to a greater extent, we've seen a moderate peak in infections. And of course, um, Sweden was kind of put in the naughty corner because they didn't yeah. play the, the game in the way that uh, many other countries decided to. And um, But now we're seeing this very steady decline in case rates and of course where you have seen peaks in many countries these peaks are actually associated with increased testing we want to see what's going on we test more people and you see a peak um, another way that you see peaks in testing that is very misleading is to do with the time at which data is received by agencies so if you have a delay of two weeks so when we looked at some of the UK cases even in Leicester, we saw a bunch of data that arrived on the same date that was actually delayed over a 10-day period that arrived and looked like there was this 
huge mini, spike. Well, mini spike. Yeah. It looks like mm -hmm. a huge spike, but you've got to keep a very close eye on the y-axis to see what kind of numbers we're dealing with. They're not very big spikes. None of the increasing trends that people are talking about a, a second surge are actually huge. Um, they are significant, but where it's related to testing, it's understandable. And again, if the, if the, um, if the R number increases above one, if it's not associated with severe disease, um, and it's not associated with death, then actually it's a pretty positive sign. Yeah, let us get on with herd our, immunity. And... You know, the, the, the only thing in the end, even if you have a vaccine that actually ends up helping us, is our immune system. Well, I mean, absolutely. And um, and it's much better, in my view, to have natural antibodies anyway that you made yourself. They yeah. stand you in better stead. And, you know, just on that point, the, the, there's also... Um, good evidence that that there are, are many many mutation, mutations that are associated with with the um, coronavirus and um, probably more than 200 now and one of the patterns we're beginning to see is that it is infecting younger and younger people who are getting less and less disease still the predominant mortality is in the very old with multiple comorbidities and that's a very positive sign and we may well moved to a situation. In, in the US, for example, you have about um, 35 million cases of influenza and pneumonia mm. every year. Um, so, um, and the country doesn't lock down for that. It doesn't lock. No, you have a, lock I think. I think you have about a million and a half cases of TB. Yeah. And the country doesn't lock down for that either. No, exactly. And I, I mean, surely this um, this effect of seeing the virus mutate but mutate into much less virulent forms um, and so the disease is is less I mean this is part of our evolutionary survival mechanism isn't it I mean it's how it's how we're still here as human beings on the planet well, when when the whole COVID-19 issue blew up back in you know late February March our primary message was adapt don't fight yes our primary message today is adapt, don't fight. The only thing that has ever worked for human beings and any other animal, when we start to understand that viruses are actually an essential part of all life on mm. the planet. They're a mechanism for genetic exchange um, amongst animals and plants. Um, only a very small number result in severe disease. If there is a new entry into the human virome, population of viruses that are associated with humans, um, it is always going to create a little bit more disease early on. This is not a, a very dangerous virus, no. um, you know, in the, the way in which, you know, Ebola or Marburg, for example, are dangerous viruses. No. This is a... I mean, this is why we've also always said, you know, shield the vulnerable, but don't lock down the healthy. Yeah. Because, you know, those of us that are healthy with resilient immune systems can really be doing our bit um, to, to take the virulence down. And it's also why I'm hugely concerned about the new messaging, which is hands, um, face and space. Yeah. So, you know, all of this, um, I mean, the hand washing with soap and water is fine, but the use of all the antibacterials, you're completely destroying your own microbiome on the skin. Um, you're still breathing in all those chemicals. And then you've got all the issues that come from wearing a mask all the time. And, um, you know, 
space, okay, you know, that's one thing, but our immune systems have been built to completely interact with other people, the natural environment. It's learning all the time and you're, you're taking, you're taking is, that it away. It is the, um, the biggest error in the government messaging around all of this to, to not discuss the significance of the immune system. There's so many things that that they could build into public health messaging that all about immune support. Um, the, the very fact that, that, that um, you know, the, the comprehensive data showing the importance of vitamin D, um, vitamin C, the importance of maintaining a diverse um, microbiome and virome, um, uh, exposing yourself to the outdoor that's environment. What a, that's what a lot of people don't understand is that, you know, a large percentage, maybe even up to a third of our microbiome are viruses. And they live inside us. You know, there is, it's interesting, there is absolutely no causal evidence that I've seen that the spike in mortality, winter mortality in the Northern Hemisphere that is being associated with COVID is caused by COVID. And it's interesting, say if you look at the Euromomo data, which is the um, it's a European Commission project that was started in 2008 that looks at 24 EU countries, mm -hmm. including the England, Wales, Northern Ireland and Scotland um, separately. And what it's tracking is excess mortality. And it started doing this because of the difficulty of apportioning um, death from pneumonia and influenza. And obviously it's now continuing to do it in the COVID outbreak. What you see is in the majority of countries around Europe where we had a significant so-called epicenter of COVID, there is no excess mortality. In the vast majority of countries, um, you know, Spain being a continuing exception, um, what was excess mortality has now returned to normal. In most countries, you've seen negative excess mortality, meaning that the over 85s that probably were infected by coronavirus or other infections then died, were removed from the population and they were no longer available to die. To die. So, so we've got, we've got, a, we've so got we a get this, this, this negative. You know, th th this is a huge message. It, you don't see it anywhere on the mainstream media. And I, I know that um, for those of you that watch um, our videos and follow us, you, um, you're going to um, you, you, you're going to understand some of this. But I really hope that you will share, so that um, people who tend to not follow this kind of information would just get something a little bit different in there. Yeah, I mean, uh, examples of countries that have not had any excess mortality are Austria, Estonia, Finland, Luxembourg, Malta, um, Berlin is a region of, of Germany. Um, the list is considerable. Mm -hmm. um, there's also, if you look, uh, Sweden has been highlighted when it went through its mm -hmm. initial surge infections of being out of control. But when you look at excess mortality, it was never out of control. Yeah. It was only a very <clears throat> modest, additional excess in mortality that then moved to a negative excess um, and and has been very stable since um, in terms of mortality so um, the UK Spain um, Italy um, you know 
are amongst the European countries that have had more of a problem. Um, the UK, um, as I said earlier, has, has had, um, in terms of um, death rates per 100,000, the highest in the world. Um, but the US also hasn't been faring well. And what we see is a pattern of deaths associated with countries that carry a lot of old people with comorbidities. And those deaths are not conclusively linked to COVID-19. No, and I, and I think we have to come back yet again and say that you can't trust the figures either because we're, we're aware that there have been you know, this mixing up of data. Um, there's also been a lot put down to COVID that possibly it was the underlying condition um, and that person may have been infected at the time, but the underlying condition was responsible for the death. Um, Rob, just one other thing on the PCR testing. Given the fact that COVID-19 is a coronavirus and, you know, there's many coronaviruses and other colds, and because the PCR testing is basically highlighting fragments of RNA and DNA, can we, are we sure that we're actually looking at um, SARS-CoV-2? Could we be picking up fragments of other coronaviruses? Um, you know, the bottom line is if you look at the most... Um, we're all relying on what data has been published. And again, it's a bit like the yellow car analogy. If you saw a yellow car back in December or January and you carry on looking for yellow cars, you will find those yellow cars. But you can ignore all the silver, black, blue, green and other cars as well. Mm -hmm. And so um, I don't believe we can conclusively say now that the antigen test is specifically relating to only that virus without knowing all the other viruses that may share elements of that same sequence. We know, for example, that many parts of the sequence are identical with SARS and MERS. So, um, yes, we have a, a greater understanding gene sequencing technologies at a more advanced stage than they've ever been, obviously, um, and we're beginning to explore viruses. Um, they are, um, you know, they've been perceived, we still have this sort of Pasteurian mentality where viruses and bacteria Dangerous. are bad, yeah. and we've got to this recognition that bacteria, most of them are the good guys. We're not yet there in understanding that most viruses are good guys. In fact, they are fundamental to life. Um, and so we're, we're at a very early day, days of our understanding. Um, and, and I think the, we, if we're going to be, you know, do science justice, we have to apply a little bit more rigor to our understanding causation. And it's very fluffy right now, very fluffy. So I think to finish up, perhaps we could just, you know, have a little look at what's right or wrong with sort of the global mainstream, you know, handling of what's going on. Because personally, I, feel like we're in a funnel and we're being pushed on a funnel to a very particular end goal. Um, I've just listened to Boris Johnson um, telling us that um, there's no cure for, for this disease, this terrible, terrifying disease, other than what we do with our behaviour, i.e. antibacterial masks space. And 
that's just patently not true. Um, and, you know, we know about immune resilience, we know about herd immunity, we know about all these things. So can you wrap us up? Can you put a nice ribbon around our conversation well, today? Yeah, the bottom line is that I think lockdown as a strategy, when we start to look at the countries that did not lock down clearly, is not scientifically based. So the idea of locking down populations and then suffering the huge collateral mm -hmm. damage to society and economies and livelihoods and expanding, you know, for, for years and years, countries have tried to narrow social health inequalities. Now we have a, for the sake of a disease that's not worse than pneumonia and influenza, we are creating massive inequalities, massive social divide. Um, what for? Is there a scientific basis? Absolutely not. Mm -hmm. um, you know, what else, what else is right? Do, do we need to cure a disease that's not really harming a lot of people? Do we need to um, essentially partition COVID-19 into a unique category that is completely different from all other diseases? You look at the stats that are coming out from most countries and you see COVID related deaths and then non-COVID related deaths. We've not done that with any other disease and we start to lose a sense of balance about what's going on here. Um, so um, our own view is, is, is really about the fact that, you know, the more we can do to adapt, I still would uphold the Swedish model as the most scientifically based approach to this that, that um, allow school children um, to to be school children um, having seen what's going on in Thailand to put children in perspex know, cages so that they cannot relate to to with each lids other on. yeah with lids on at, at, a, at a critical stage of their development to lose the ability to develop social norms and behaviors and recognition and communication mm -hmm. at that age we don't know what the consequences of this downstream and it, if it was a disease that was killing people in the number that some of the you know middle-aged plagues were it may be different but this is not the same kind of a disease so um, yes I mean getting back to normal um, being able to address of the infections yes we see um, case fatality rates of, of about five percent if you want to look at some of the data but if we could treat the five percent of people who are who who get sick and have effective mechanisms of dealing with those everyone could go back to normal and the astounding thing from our point of view is the the, the doctors who are doing that effectively are being marginalized by yes. the mainstream establishment that that is culpable that is negligent on the and part of that's governments. why we see the uh, the you know the doctors for truth movement rising up around the world which is um deeply encouraging that uh, you know doctors are actually stepping out to um to speak about their experiences uh, you know if, you, if you're a doctor who signed the hippocratic oath um and you start to look at the data i mean what's astounding me is that um many people have given up on relying on official stats yes. because the official stats are so warped or so conflated or so mixed. Um, many people are looking at data for themselves and this is includes doctors but includes lay members of society as well. Um, you know, a, across the road from our office, there's, a, there's is... a lady who's 
doing her own research, going on to yes. Office of National Statistics and, and going, my goodness, things don't seem to fit the pattern of information we're receiving from and the this government. Is why, and this is why we reported in our um, news snippets last week um, that they are calling on us to stop doing our own individual independent research because we don't have the expertise to be able to uh, interrogate the data. And they say, even if you're a scientist, you shouldn't be doing your own research. You should be relying on what's coming off the television, which is um, downright scary. Yeah, so um, we would say completely the opposite. Don't yep. only rely on government statistics. If you follow those statistics, you are likely to remain in a place of fear. Fear in terms of your immune response is probably the most damaging thing you can do to be in a position of chronic stress engendered by fear because of your concern about others to um, mm -hmm. start hate campaigns for people who choose not to wear masks is not helpful for your own immune system. Not at um, all. Um, as for the science on masks, by the way, to throw that one in, um, the data has not changed despite the fact that the um, policy on mask wearing has changed dramatically and it's changed across many, many countries with no solid evidence that out in the wider community, mask wearing has benefits. There's no data for that at all. Um, and, and, uh, and But yet the guilt button is being turned up massively, you know, don't do it for yourself. You, you're protecting the vulnerable, you're protecting granny. And um, it's, uh, you know, we're seeing a lot of emotive messaging and I would, you know, just ask everybody to sink into themselves and really, use you know yourself to see whether that messaging is coherent with um, the, the way you feel inside and that, you know I, I i think there's a set of policies that are designed to be removed as and when a vaccine comes yeah. online and i'm very pleased to hear that um professor paul offit who was for many years the poster boy for the pro-vaccine movement is now cautioning and particularly um, asking for increased transparency um, around COVID vaccines. We're talking about new technologies, recombinant DNA technologies being applied on the large scale to human beings for the first time. No public discussion at all about whether it's acceptable to use um, genetic engineering technologies on humans, some of which, for example, like the Moderna vaccine that's the front runner in the US, that actually provides instructions to your muscle cells to produce the spike protein to engender uh, an antibody and T-cell response. That is a fundamental change to the way any medicine has ever been applied to human beings. And there's been no public discussion. Um, it suggests that all vaccines are proven and tested. It doesn't, it's, it's as crazy as saying that, um, you know, all pharmaceuticals are safe and effective when we know some of them, well, the, the prescription drugs as a as a group result in the third leading cause of death. So, um, and some of them are very necessary. Others have extreme side effects, and we make specific risk benefit decisions. So, um, well, we are seeing already even um, comment on the uh, Oxford um, vaccine that now there's a lot of talk about um, you know before you know a vaccine was going to have to be. 90% effective, then it was 75. Now it's dropping to 50% effective. Um, and, you know, they are acknowledging a wide range of adverse events. And, um, you know, 
we, we know that you're not going to see some adverse events are not going to come out for a couple of years. So some of them may not come out for for a decade. For a or decade more. and still be related. The, the 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 more complex the adverse effects. If you look at triggering autoimmune disease, for example, yes. which is a major concern, um, in order to, to to find causal evidence of that, um, could take years um, to be able to show. And and it depends who does the research and what kind of research you do. Mm -hmm. Who's going to fund yeah. the research to do that? And that's one of the reasons these kind of issues in terms of long-term or delayed effects of vaccines are always sitting in the marginal lands of research because they're not well funded. Hence my feeling that we're, you know, all being funneled. Um, you know, and it's the old saying of um, how do you how do you boil a frog? You know, really slowly turning up the heat really slowly and it certainly feels that um, we need to we need to get out of the water. So, yeah. um, Rob, last comment. Well, I, you know, I, I think a, a term that's being increasingly used is um, is this idea of acquiescence. Um, if we acquiesce towards policies that are being dictated by governments on the basis of limited data or manufactured data um, or uncertain data, we have an issue. The one thing that will always should sit at the top of our list is to um, manage our immune systems. You know, it's the very thing that uh, governments are not talking about. And there's a huge amount. We've got a lot of information on our websites and other videos yeah. that we can t talk about that. But that should be the number one thing we do. And I think the, the second thing we do is, is understand the uncertainty of the data that we're dealing with. And if you rely only on government sources, which is what governments are asking us to do, we know that those data are deeply misleading. Um, yeah. So you have to be looking at other trusted sources. You have to be looking at that. This is one of the things we do on our COVID zone mm -hmm. um, area of our website. We're tracking every week um, data from multiple sources. And it's when you get this bigger picture, you can start to see that um, it's not as hopeless as it sometimes look, yes. particularly in terms of the disease. If there is a sense of hopelessness, it's to do with misguided government policy that may have major impacts on our freedoms, on our ability to move, our ability to exchange and interact, um, our ability to raise our kids in a way that's going to be good for them long term. Those, for me, are much, much more serious problems. They're related to COVID, but of course they have nothing to do with the virus at all. Exactly, and I think that's the thing is that we, we the people, um, are, are powerful. We, we we are not lacking in power and um, there are many 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 protests happening regularly every weekend around the world and they appear to not being being reported on the mainstream media but you can find a lot of information um, on the alternative media sources as well so um, I think there are a lot of people who are feeling a dissonance between some of the you know the the government messaging and what we're actually seeing and feeling internally and that lack of coherence I hope um, is going to allow us all to question our acquiescence and um, stand up where we need to. We're really grateful that you joined us today and it's been lovely for us not to be holding an umbrella and we really look forward to seeing you again soon. Thank you.
Thank you.